Hello and welcome to Sip Sip Hooray, the podcast for people who love wine and want to know more about it, including the ins and outs of winemaking and growing. People everywhere are feeling the often devastating impacts of climate change, from fires to floods to hurricanes, oh my. The wine world has also been deeply affected by warming temperatures, water shortages, and sustainability questions. On today's show, we're talking climate change and wine with Brian Friedman, author of a new book on the subject. It's called Crushed, How a Changing Climate is Altering the Way We Drink. There are some sobering realities in it, but I promise you, Brian's book will not leave you crushed. It is full of hope and innovation too. We are the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary Orlin, and we are so excited to have Brian Friedman with us. He's a wine, spirits, and food, and travel writer. He's written for Forbes, Food and Wine, Wine Enthusiast, Wine Whiskey Advocate, The Bourbon Review. Um, and in his book, Crushed, he visits with more than eight producers, actually, but um, basically eight different regions around the globe to tell the stories of producers who have faced hardships because of climate change, whether it's fires or storms or flooding or extreme cold. But he also digs in and finds out how these very creative and innovative people are making changes to how they grow their grapes or grains and what they are doing to help mitigate the impact of climate change. Because let's be real, it's here now. It's, um, there's drama, it's an impact on everyday lives, especially in the wine and spirits world. As one producer told Brian in their interview, it's not global warming, it's global weirdness. So, and we're seeing that with sparkling wine now, world-class sparkling wine being made in southeastern England, wines even being grown and made in Denmark right now. So, who'd have thunk? But Brian's here to give us the lowdown on what's happening, why it's happening, and giving us hope about how these incredible people are addressing the issues so that we will all have something wonderful to drink in our glass. So Brian, welcome to Sip Sip Hooray. Thank you, it's great to be here. Yes, we are both really grateful for your time and we're super excited about the new book, Crushed. Congratulations on that. Before we get into Crushed, I guess I'm curious, you, Mary Orlin mentioned in her introduction that you are a wine writer and you've written for all sorts of publications. You are a speaker, you, you talk to different groups about wine, you're a food and beverage consultant for restaurants. So you have your hands in lots of different pots. So I'm curious, how long have you been interested in wine and how long have you been working wine professionally? And then kind of what led you to write this book? So, so two separate answers for you. So okay. I have Gosh, I, I've been fascinated by wine um, since I'm six years old. Uh, not what? necessarily the normal story that you hear, uh, but I grew up uh, in the Philadelphia suburbs. And, you know, my mother has always been a spectacular cook. My dad has always collected wine. And from the time I was six years old, every night he would get home from work, uh, you know, 
change into, you know, his, his evening attire. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'd go into the kitchen. My mom would tell us what she was making for dinner. And my dad would take me down to the basement and explain why he was pulling one bottle as opposed to another to pair with that meal. And even at six years old, I was, you know, <laughs> I say expected to sit on the couch with him uh, once we got up from the basement. And, you know, I would have a tiny, tiny amount of wine in my glass and we would sit there and swirl and sniff and, 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 you know, we would discuss, you know, am I smelling and tasting cherries? Okay, great. Is it red cherries or black cherries? Are you smelling strawberries? Well, is it a fresh strawberry or like a strawberry fruit roll-up that I had that day for snack at recess? And I found out early on that not only did I have a really strong sense of smell and taste, but I was fascinated by this stuff. You know, look, obviously at six years old, I wasn't thinking that, you know, wine can be the most amazing lens through which to see culture and geography and geology and language and all this other stuff. But there was something about it that really spoke to me. And I loved the way it changed in the context of different foods. Uh, but it never occurred to me that I could, you know, make a living out of that, right? I mean, I knew there was always like a stack of Wine Spectator magazines uh, next to my dad's chair. Uh, like on one side was Wine Spectator magazines. On the other side was a box of pretzels, which was like this sort of neutral uh, pairing partner of choice when we were tasting the wine. <laughs> I love um, that. Pretzels. <laughs> absolutely. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, he was a periodontist. My mother is an artist by profession. Um, but I never knew you could like do something with wine unless you were making it. And let's be honest, the Philadelphia suburbs is not exactly a hotbed of Vitis vinifera growing. Right. <laughs> so no, I didn't think so. No, no. So, you know, I, I continued with that passion. I did my undergrad at Penn State. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was like the guy. I'm whispering, right? So this is going to be our secret. So don't tell anybody. But I was the guy. <laughs> Go right first, ahead. Right. Okay. It's totally off the record. Off the record. So we won't tell. I, thank you. Thank you. And so first weekend at Penn State, uh, you know, my friends and I, we go to like this fraternity party. And, you know, there's like kegs in the corners and we're like 18 years old, right? We're at a college party and I take a sip of this, this warm, foamy, you know, garbage beer. And I love beer. This was not good beer. And I remember saying to the fraternity guy, do you have any sort of red wine? And like, I thought he was going to kill me. Like, you don't <laughs> do that, right? So... I learned quickly, don't do that. Drink wine on your own time. Um, I picked up a little, you know, column in a local publication. I was writing about, you know, cigars and beer and wine. Then they found out I was not 21 and I was immediately fired. Um, oops. But, oops. But uh, yeah, I always wrote about this stuff. And when I graduated college, I moved to New York to be a writer. And of course, it occurred to me very quickly that this is a job. And you have to get up in the morning, you have to crank out content, you have to constantly pitch. Mm. And at 22 years old, I was far more interested in drinking the stuff than writing about it. So I enrolled at NYU, got a master's in secondary English education, and then came home and taught high school English from 02 to 05. Oh, did and you? Yeah. And it's, you know, I have so much respect for teachers. It's, it's a difficult, difficult job. Uh, it is, it is such a noble profession, but I was, my heart wasn't in it. And midway through my third year, my wife said to me, Hey, do me a favor. You should quit your job. I said, you're crazy. And she said, you know, she made a compelling point. She said, we don't have kids. 
we're in our mid to late 20s at that point. If we're going to take that chance, that was the time. So I quit my job. She quit her job. And we struggled for years. But slowly you build up uh, a portfolio of work. Uh, you, you grow your network of people. And there were so many people who were so instrumental uh, in my ultimately being able to make a career out of this. Uh, you know, John Mariani, Ray Isle, uh, you know, these sort of legends of, right. of the wine writing world uh, really opened up doors. They've, they've become friends over the years. And uh, now, astoundingly enough, I, I, I make my living by being up to my eyeballs in delicious fermented and distilled liquid every day. <laughs> Could be worse. Yes. Right. <laughs> I actually think that the teaching experience, I think that comes through in the way that you're able to break things down. You don't talk over people's heads. You are an educator, but not in an obnoxious way, you know? So much of wine, Mary and I, Mary Orla and I are always struggling with the I don't want to get too in the weeds. I want to mm -hmm. make sure I'm not, you know this isn't boring because it can get a little technical and a little, unless you're really into like, Oh, it smells like forest floor or whatever. Um, I, I like the way you have you, it's plain speaking, you're writing. I, I enjoyed being able to just read it as a consumer of wine and not an, uh, having to be an, a wine expert. Yes. Thank you. And, I appreciate that. Well, with your storytelling. So at the beginning of each chapter, basically, in crushed you start with a natural disaster let's um take chapter you know the first one um which is on jamie kutch and his wife so and um his wife Kristen green and about the winery in sonoma that they had and how they were in um half moon bay on a little harvest is over we're done we're happy we just need a little break and that break was cut short because of the 2017 tubs fire and yeah, quite you see, a quite a welcome to vacation right cool, exactly exactly so you seem to start each chapter off with a different type of natural disaster catastrophe and work through it with the experience of either the winemaker, grower, distiller, and um, a resolution. Can you talk about how you came up with that structure? Oh, wow. Now you're asking me hard questions. <laughs> <Just> my <laughs> job. About, like, forest floor, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's, look, for those of us who are lucky enough to do this for a living, and I wake up every morning hyper aware that I am the luckiest guy in the world to get to do this for a living. One of the big perks of this job is that, you know, I, I've gotten to travel around the world. And, you know, especially in the before times, it was, you know, like one week out of every month or so, I was elsewhere. It's, it's starting up again, which is really nice. Um, but, you know, you, you'd have these lunches, you'd have these dinners with the people who were involved in growing the grains and grapes, who were involved in distilling the spirits and making the wine. And at some point, inevitably, and with greater frequency over the years, the conversation would turn to climate change. And, you know, I thought this is this is very interesting, right? I mean, there's there's I think it's easy to look at what's going on with climate change as it relates to beverage alcohol as just a constant drumbeat of bad news, right? And certainly a lot of it is. I mean, it's 
it's heartbreaking, right? I mean, these are people's lives and livelihoods at stake. Uh, you know, beverage alcohol worldwide is going to hit like three quarters of a trillion dollars in the next few years. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of jobs. It's a lot of people's heart and soul and passion in this. And it is terrifying. But the other thing that I have discovered, and I'm sure you two have noticed this too, is that some of the most forward thinking and passionate and capable of pivoting professionals on the planet are the folks who are involved in making wines and spirits. And it was so eye-opening to me, what's going on here, sort of behind the scenes, you pull back the curtain and it's a lot more complex than, you know, the acreage count, uh, you know, how many acres the fire has torched or, you know, what percentage of the crop was ruined by the ill-timed frost or hail or whatever it might be, um, because it is, it is horrible. But there's also this sense that I got throughout the process here and speaking with everybody who's included in the book that I would predict that these people who make these amazing beverages are in many ways going to be likely to lead the way into the future for all agriculture, right? And teaching us how to figure out how to pivot, how to That's manage awesome. these things. And mm -hmm. that to me is, it's amazing, right? I mean, that's, you know, you, you look at the story with Jamie and Kristen, right? I mean, Jamie produces some of the, for my money, some of the best Pinot Noirs in, in I mean, look, he's, his most famous ones are, you know, Sonoma Coast, these wonderful single vineyard expressions. Right. I think there's an argument to be made that he's making some of the most compelling Pinot Noirs in America, right? His wines are beautiful, no doubt. Yeah, and, and they're, you know, he's, He's working with his growers to figure out different techniques for dealing with the vines at various mile markers throughout the year. He's changing around like so many producers are around the world when harvesting is happening. Uh, you know, I, I, one of my chapters focuses on the wine industry of Israel, right? right. So this to me was a fascinating question. I, I was there in the summer of 2021 for a week or so uh, meeting with producers and on the ground seeing what's going on. And you know, that to me became a fascinating question there because, you know, what do you do in a warming planet when give or take around 50% of the territory of your country is desert or near desert, right? What do you do then? Sure. But obviously there's, you know, there's ways to pivot. Wine has been made there for 5,000 years, right? Or more. Um, and what I discovered there is the agricultural technology sector is is one of the most accomplished on planet earth i mean we don't have precision drip irrigation for any agriculture as we know it without you know the israeli agricultural industry sure. really and, they invented oh my that? gosh they 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 are they are key to so many things because think about it when the state was founded right um you know and i write about this in the book they realized very early on that you know they're going to have to be as self-sufficient as possible. They're going to have to somehow, and you keep on hearing this phrase there, make the desert bloom, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And they did. They did. I mean, if you have either of you ever been there? No, no, I have not. Unfortunately, I'd like to. It is. It is just. It, it's wonderful. It was my fourth time there, I guess. And you know, you'll be driving along, and all of a sudden, in the middle of this, what looks like the most inhospitable landscape you could imagine 
there's like this vibrant, vivid green of cucumbers or hmm. the red of tomatoes. And it's so they've learned how to do yeah. this. And a lot of what they're doing with wine, I think, is really going to be uh, to become a key part of how so many other parts of the wine world are handling uh, climate change. So it's really it's a story of hope as much as it is uh, calamity around the world. And I, I love that they go together side by side. Sure. Well, yes, because, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, as we know. Yeah. But, you know, uh, getting back to California, since we're based in California, can you talk to us about some of the innovations you learned about some of the ways, whether is it trellising, what are picking earlier, what are ways wine growers are innovating around, in our case in California, a warming climate and uh, the threat of fires? Okay, so so a couple of things. I mean, I'm seeing more and more frequently in California, uh, South America, certainly, uh, the sort of shade netting, sun netting that yes. that can be stretched out over the vines that will help uh, attenuate at least some of the more deleterious effects of the heat and the pounding sun. By the way, you said so kind that of giving I, it some shade. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and by the way, that, that pretentious phrasing was for you, the more deleterious effects. I want to note, <laughs> I could have said, yes. I could have made it more simple, but I wanted to go pretentious. Uh, you know, I stick with two syllable words, Max. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, so, you know, I think that's things like that we're going to be seeing more and more of, but in terms of sort of bigger picture and structural changes that are happening, look, when I was growing up, okay. Um, I'm in my mid forties now. Um, emotionally, I still think I'm about 14 years old, but, but, you know, from a temporal standpoint, I'm in my mid forties when I was growing up, um, you would often hear that a lot of the most venerated vineyard sites in California were more Valley floor, right? Right. Because you could get more ripeness mm -hmm. and, you know, it's warmer and richer yeah. soils. Exactly. Yeah. Like, to like Tokalon or doctors. Exactly. And, and look, these, these world-class vineyard sites like Tokalon, like Dr. Crane, these, these are still making astoundingly wonderful wines, right? Um, but what we're seeing now, if, if you were to sit down with wine professionals, sommeliers, chances are they're also going to want to talk to you about mountain vineyards, yes. about hillside vineyards, because now all of a sudden, you know, if, if, you're, if you're at altitude, then you're getting cooler nights and a bigger diurnal swing, which means better acid maintenance over the course of the growing season. And if it's, you know, one or two degrees Fahrenheit cooler each day on average, well, that's a huge accumulated difference over the course of a growing season. Mm -hmm. One of the other advantages, you know, if it's, you know, hillside vineyards, mountain vineyards, let's say there's going to be, uh, you know, poorer soils, which is going to force the, the roots of the individual vines to go down further to get the water and nutrients that they need. Well, that actually, it turns out, seems to help them uh, to stave off some of the other more difficult impacts of drought and the things that are happening with climate change. So, you know, that's, that's one thing. The other thing that I think is important, and I've seen this all over the world, is there are producers and growers who have really started to experiment with the grape varieties that are getting planted, right? Because the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, it, it used to be that, you know, you had regions that were known for like a thing, right? 
Napa Cab, Oregon Pinot, whatever it might be, climate change is giving a lot of people this sense that maybe in a century from now, or not even that, it's not going to be the right climate for growing these things. Mm -hmm. So there's more experimentation as well, right? Absolutely. Well, I was... Sorry, please. Okay. I was just reading yesterday, in fact, about Robert Zinsky, who is a winemaker in Napa Valley, and he has Pinot Noir vineyards in the Carneros region, which is in southern Napa, and is traditionally like the coolest region of Napa. But he's ripping out his Pinot and replacing it with Zinfandel and other more hardier reds because of climate change. Yeah. And who would have thought? I mean, Carneros... That was like a right. sweet spot for Pinot. And now all of a sudden, if people like Sinsky are ripping that out, that tells you something. So then what's going to happen up in Calistoga, right? right? Where you get that heat trapping. I mean, at some point, maybe Cab is going to be replaced by what? I don't know, Tempranillo. Right. Well, this is where the panic starts to set in. You know, people are yes. like, oh my goodness, what yes. can we do about this? You know? Exactly. Yeah. Sure. But, you know, the, the best producers... Um, and the most open-minded producers, uh, I think, are going to be able to make great wine no matter what, right? Robert Sinsky is going to make, you know, spectacular Zinfandel uh, mm-hmm. in Carneros because mm-hmm. that's what Robert Sinsky does. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And it's and it's not like um, whining about it won't change the reality. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we right. might as well exactly <laughs> figure it well, out. <laughs> Well, let's talk about spirits because, you know, especially for Mary B and me, we're so focused on the wine industry, um, hadn't really put much thought into, oh gosh, what's happening to bourbon and whiskey and, you know, scotch or gin or all this, but it's all an agricultural product. And um, I'd love to hear about your experience in Kentucky, where you profile producers who were hit with these really terrific, horrific floods recently. Yeah, I mean, I I start off the chapter telling the story about a flood that hit Castle and Key. And Castle and Key makes just wonderful spirits. And this was before they had opened. It's an historical property. Uh, they had, you know, built out a lot of it while maintaining, you know, the original historical structure and a lot of the, you know, artistic details there. And then, you know, like a month or so before they were set to open, there was this storm system that came through. And, you know, for them, um, they were used to flooding from storms that was coming up off the river, right? I mean, that happens, right? I mean, you're, you know, storms come in, rivers are going to flood. They had sandbags, they had pumps, they had things that they knew that they could do with everything that had always happened there in the past, right? But with this storm, history was not a guide because the problem was there had been uh, some development going on, right? Some commercial development that had been going on on a property that was an historical uh, farm type property up the hill, sort of above their parking lot, right? And there's some question about whether or not it had been done to code and, you know, all this other stuff. Well, the problem is when like, you know, you start clear cutting or effectively clear cutting trees 
and you know uh, the sort of undergrowth and things like this, the roots of all these things, they help give structure to soil, right? It, and it helps prevent soil from being washed away during bad rain. Well, this had been so cleared for this uh, more commercial development up the hill that they had the flooding not coming from below at the river like they had always expected, but it had it seemed to come from above and mm -hmm. it was coming down and carrying all this dirt and mud and other stuff. Yeah. And, wow. Yeah. And, and what do you do about that? Right. Yeah. You've already yeah. sunk all your money into it, into building out this new distillery. So you got to figure it out. Right. And and they did. They released their first bourbon, I want to say about a year ago. Um, and it's spectacular. And, and they've, you know, they've recovered. It's an amazing place. But when it comes to spirits, I think it's easy to forget that it's an agricultural product, right? right. Um, and I think a lot of that is because with wine, it's that old question. Was it a good year? Was it a bad year? Right. It all depends all on what know. happened to that grapevine, right? Right, exactly. I mean, you know, my vineyard could have had a really good year, but the one across the street, you know, who knows, maybe the hail hit there worse than it hit mine. And it was a different kind of year. But I think because of that, there's this constant reminder that grapes have to grow year after year. It is agriculture writ large. Whereas with spirits, because the majority of spirits that we buy are not vintage dated, although that will a number of uh, producers that I spoke with, that will likely be changing. Really? Okay. Yeah, because all of a sudden, if you're like a craft producer and you're, you know, you're not sourcing your grains on the commodity market, you're working with smaller farms, maybe you want to highlight what happened that particular year, right? Sure. Uh, and so, look, I, I, it's not going to be the majority of spirits, certainly, but it could be an interesting niche segment. But, you know, even for the large producers, right, the commodity market for grains are going crazy. If there's ill-timed hail or frost at a commodity cereal farm in Saskatchewan in, in the upper Midwest, that's going to have ripple effects throughout the industry. I was talking to one person. He's, he's the master distiller for Sazerac. And as such, he's in charge of the production of two or three of their gins. And he was telling me last year that because there was like an ill-timed storm that hit uh, like Asia, his, you know, his normal sources of a lot of the botanicals for the gins were not able to supply as much as he needed. And he had to scour the planet in order to find these botanicals because wow. you got to produce the gin. So right. what do you do? So, you know, it has an impact. It's going to have an impact on pricing, yes. on how much collectors and consumers can purchase. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it's not all doom and gloom because there are some fabulously visionary producers out there at both the more craft end of the spectrum and the larger end of the spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's very important. I think a lot of times it's easy to assume that, you know, it, it's that knee-jerk reaction that so many of us have that the smaller players have to be the ones that are being the more responsible and the bigger corporate players have to be the ones that are not, right? But that is just not true. And what I found in, in, in reporting for this book is the larger producers and the larger companies are often uh, leading the way as well as the smaller ones because they also have the means to do this. And right. when you're looking at that sort of economy of scale, if they can, if they can 
you know, have a more reliable source of cereals, which maybe means it's more sustainable, which, you know, whatever it might be, um, that's better for the bottom line. So I'm finding that both large brands and smaller ones are really all in when it comes to this stuff. That's such a well, good it becomes, point. It really it's is. It's a matter of survival, right? Yeah. I mean, it's either they, like we said, they either they figure it out or they close up shop. I mean, they've got, there's so much money invested in all of this. And as you said earlier, people's livelihoods, their their hopes and dreams, they've put everything in either to uh, this, this their brand or their, the, you know, their company. And so to, giving up is not usually an option. No, no, certainly not. And and we're at the point now where we really, you got to be delusional to say, well, I'm not quite sure if climate change is a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like nobody who's making wines and spirits that I have spoken to anywhere around the world has said, you know, it's not a thing. There are producers who are saying it's maybe less pronounced where they are, mm-hmm. um, but certainly uh, even they're taking efforts to mitigate it because they know what's eventually coming down the pike. Have sure. you seen any places where that where you think wine won't be made or grown, grapes won't be grown anymore? You know, one of the things you talk about in the book is uh, the burgeoning wine industry in, in England suddenly is becoming a place where they could actually make, grow and grow decent wine grapes. But are there places where you thought after researching it, like, you know, I don't see this 10 years from now still being a place where vineyards are hot? I don't think 10 years from now that's 20? going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let you pin me down with your gotcha estimates here. <laughs> Uh, I do in gloom. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I'm a pessimist today. <laughs> no, but look, I think I think if we're being honest with ourselves, in 50 to 100 years, um, there there may be places that are. Where let me rephrase this: there will certainly be places that are going to be too hot or too weird um, for growing the grapes that we have associated with them for a long time. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, do I think that in, you know, 50 years, there's not going to be a wine industry in fill in the blank, all these places that we love? Absolutely not. Because people are figuring out, just like you were saying with Sinsky, right? Plant different things, plant in a different way, maybe use different clones, different root stocks, change your blend. Um, but I think the wine landscape is going to, look different than it does right now, it should, and it's going to have to. But I don't know if there's anywhere that's not going to be able to. Um, what I do think is going to happen is something that we've already seen, and that's pushing to further extremes, right? Like my chapter on uh, South America, mm-hmm. and yes. of course, Chile and Argentina are very different countries. It drives me crazy when people say, I do or don't like South American wines. I'm like, it's a giant continent. What are you <laughs> yes. talking about? There's a huge Chile mountain Argentina. range between the two countries. People. Yes, they're so different. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't like, you know, Chilean Pinot Noir. Great. Have some Malbec from the other side of the Andes, right? Like that's fine. But don't tell me you don't like Chilean Pinot Noir because it's a really long country, right? You're telling mm-hmm. me, that's like people say, I don't, I don't like California Cabernet. California goes from Mexico to Oregon. You can find one you like, right? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to South America, 
you know, there's producers who 20 years ago, you know, you'd go into, they would tell people, well, I'm planting, I'm planting white grapes in Patagonia, right? And, and people would often say, you're crazy. It's too cold in Patagonia, even for something, a cool climate white grape. Then all of a sudden, well, maybe you can grow some pretty good mm. Pinot Noir there. Now, all of a sudden, they're going further and further, hundreds and thousands of kilometers, even further south to more extreme environments, because now maybe it is going to be warm enough to grow grapes there, right? Isn't that crazy? However, when you do that, and this is something that I learned in the book, and just like you said in your introduction, it's, it's, this was Julie Culkin, uh, who is the co-owner of Pedernales Cellars in uh, the Texas Hill Country, fabulous industry there. Mm -hmm. And right. she said over cocktails one night uh, last autumn, she said, it's not global warming, it's global weirding. And that's exactly, I'm so happy you brought that up in the beginning, because let's say you're moving further south in Patagonia or further north in far northern, you know, far, but in northern Europe to, to start growing grapes. Well, that's fine. Maybe you're going to get warm enough temperatures to ripen, but then you got other issues, right? Maybe you have really strong winds that you're going to have to contend with. So then you have to figure out, well, how am I going to train my vines? Do I need bush vines? Do I need to train them differently? You know, and then maybe you have to start thinking about, are there early frosts? Are there springtime frosts that I'm going to be concerned about, you know, after bud breaks? So there's, there's all kinds of issues that have to be contended with. But what gives me hope is that everyone involved in this seems really willing to not just answer these questions as they come up, but to keep on asking themselves more and more challenging questions so they can try to stay one step ahead. And that's what gives me hope. So yeah. um, that leads to my question. Like, so we know that the authorities in Bordeaux and Champagne have recently allowed other varieties besides the traditional ones that either make up the, the five Bordeaux blend varieties or the mm -hmm. cham three Champagne blend varieties, but now they have more that they can work with and part of it is in response to the climate change. But my question for you, Brian, is, and I don't know if you've talked to any of the producers about this, so we all know Chateau Margaux, um, Lafitte Rothschild, um, and they command these incredible prices, but will a wine from Chateau Margaux that's not a blend of Cabernet, Merlot, et cetera, command the same price that previous vintages have? You know, what happens to the whole entrepreneur system when we're talking about, you know, these lesser known varieties that are now being produced by the first growth or the winery is on the right bank and same in champagne what happens with the grand marks like you know Veuve Clicquot um Moet Chandon um Krug that you know their their blends are very different are they going to command the same prices and does that mean the um previous vintages will even skyrocket more in price I don't know if you have there's a, a thought <laughs> uh, so, so first, my, my understanding with the changes to Bordeaux is right now, at least, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that those new grape varieties outside of the big five are being limited to wines that are labeled as Appalachian Bordeaux, right? So I don't believe they're, they're allowed quite yet. And again, please tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah. I don't think they're allowed quite yet. Uh, I think you're right. In, 
right in the Bordeaux Superior. I'm sure that's coming down the pike, sure. uh, if not already. But, you know, the, the, the first growths, the second and third growths, right? Um, they are, and, and then when we're talking about, you know, in Champagne, right? I, I haven't, I believe, you know, one of the big ones off the top of my head is I think Petit Meslier, right? It's going to help mm-hmm. you with acid retention. Um, you know, certainly we're going to be seeing, um, you know, some shifts and it's, it's not going to start with the very expensive ones, the prestigious ones, right? I mean, you know, Krug, uh, Clos is going to remain 100% Chardonnay. Their blend is going to remain what it is with, you know, Bollinger and Clicquot and, and Moet and all the others. Um, and I don't think that we're going to be seeing huge changes anytime soon in, you know, the, the Grand Marks in Champagne in the first and second growths in Bordeaux. And I think a lot of that is not just because um, of where they are, but also because uh, let's be honest here. Wine is a business, right? And right. the more heavily capitalized you are, the more profit you make, the more selective you can be in the vineyard and in the winery, right? So if they need to make less in a vintage or two, but keep the blends what they are in order to maintain that quality, then so be it. Because if they have to charge X percent more, well, there's collectors all over the world that are still going to sell them out. Right. So I don't I don't think the changes are going to happen, you know, at that uh, level of the wine industry yet. You know, in 50, 60 years, it very well might have to. But I don't think it's going to be in the near future. Interesting. Thank you. Um, So oh, go ahead, Mary. Go ahead, Mary. I was just going to say, as you know, you get set to really promote this, your new book, Crushed in Earnest. do you feel like you can, your message is, hey, everybody stay hopeful. We've got, and and along those lines, was there anything that really positively surprised you in your research? Like, okay, this is my reason I can sleep easy at night because you've talked about um, innovators and people in wine being willing to do the hard work of leading the way and how they may lead the rest of the agricultural community in dealing with climate change. But did you have any fun surprises along the way or anything that also gave you real encouragement? Yes, yes, yes. Every, every single day that I was reporting on and writing this book, I found uh, a sense of uh, optimism, right? Uh, again, it's there's no denying that it's really scary and dangerous and, and detrimental what's happening right now. But the fact that people are not stuck in their ways and they are willing to change what they're growing, to change how they're making wine, right? Uh, you know, I had like some game-changing Petite Syrah and Grenache in Israel. I had some Tempranillo from the Texas Hill Country and the High Plains that made me sort of sit up straighter and fix my posture and say, whoa, right? There's, you know, the the, the sparklers from England, right? I mean, who who would have imagined when I was growing up, if someone had said to me, when you're in your mid forties, you're gonna write a book talking about the English sparkling wine industry and people are gonna be okay spending 40, 50, 60 bucks and more for a bottle (laughs) of English fizz. I would have said, Stop. You had too much wine to drink. We'll talk tomorrow (laughs) when you feel better. And where is that happening in England? So southeastern England, Mm -hmm. um, you know, look, there's there's famously these sort of 
uh, sort of chalkier soils that you find in yep. parts of southeastern England, right? Well, mm-hmm. well, don't you know there's also some famously chalky soils in Champagne? And, and if you look back at the geological history, there's pretty similar origins for both. So the issue is not one of terroir in south and southeastern England. It was always one of weather. It's too cold. It's too wet. It's too cloudy. Well, as that's changing, all of a sudden, they're not just growing really good shard, but one of the producers that I spoke with said that he actually was able to bottle a still red Pinot from England. And that's not happening all the time or even often, but even as a one-off, that, that shows that there things are shifting, things will be changing, but those who are producing quality already and those who are maintaining an open mind and a willingness to pivot, which is the vast majority of people in this business, um, are going to still find a way to produce compelling, quality-driven wines. And wow. that lets me sleep at night. Heck That's yeah. great. That so, great. Brian, I've got two questions for you to wrap up. Okay. And um, so one, so you said that le- you just said what helps you sleep at night. My first question, what keeps you up at night still? And the second question... Because <laughs> we're not going to end happy. We're I, not going to let no, this... No, we're going to... Ha- and, and then my second question will end on a happy note. Which of the producers that you profile in the book were you most impressed with or influenced mm-hmm. or affected by in a positive way? Okay. All right. Here we go. What keeps me up at night? Uh, we, we got a COVID rescue dog and he just paces around the hallway and it drives me crazy. No, I'm kidding. He does. It's an echoey house. Uh, well, what keeps me up at night? Uh, pricing, you know, yeah. and, and you both alluded to it earlier. Um, at the very highest end, uh, the most prestigious end of the spectrum, it's, it's becoming more and more uh, common to be priced out, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love, I love when my collector friends uh, open up a bottle of First Growth Bordeaux or Grand Cru, or let's be honest, even Premier Cru Burgundy. Can I justify the spend? Absolutely not. My oh. rescue dog is expensive, so I can't <laughs> afford those. So pricing, I think, has gotten pretty crazy. And that's that's in the wine and spirits world, right? I mean, sure. high-end bourbon has gotten very, very expensive. Unbelievable. Yeah. And that's what the market will support. And that's, you know, that's great. I'm glad people are making profits. It's still a business, but it's frustrating. If I want to get even, even village level Burgundy from a great village is like, I got to think about it. Do I want to drop 80 to hundred bucks on a village level Burgundy? Eh, I don't know. I'd rather get like two great bottles of Kutch Pinot Noir. That, right. that to me is a better investment. Uh-huh. Um, and, and frankly, same quality level, right? That's sure. Uh, or let's be honest with Jamie. It's more like Premier Grand Cru Burgundy. Uh-huh. So pricing is nuts. Pricing is absolutely nuts. Um, producers. Yes. Oh my goodness. How to narrow it down. Um, so I will say that uh, I'm going to name you two, right? Okay. And I know we want to, we want to wrap this up, but two of them. Okay. Um, there is a producer in Texas, uh, it's called Bending Branch and it's owned, co-owned, uh, by Dr. Bob Young and his wife. Dr. Bob, uh, was a, uh, he was a physician for like 30 years and, you know, decided to retire and why would he have an easy retirement? So he decided he's going to start this winery and he's doing all kinds of work with this process 
called flash detente and cryo maceration. Yes. And, you know, put, put short, what this is, is if you're dealing with a, a warmer climate, like you do in Texas Hill Country, maybe your, your growing season, you know, you're going to get sugar ripeness, right? You're going to be able to ferment the grapes and, and, and produce enough alcohol, but maybe you're not getting quite enough phenolic ripeness. And he found that he wanted darker, more tannic, richer red wines. Well, how do you do that when he's forced to pick earlier than he, than he would initially want to? because of the weather. So it's this very interesting process of like flash freezing the grapes and then thawing them, the process of which effectively opens up many of the cell walls in the skins. And he's able to extract a significant percentage of more tannins and anthocyanins and produce darker, richer wines. It's fascinating. That leads to all kinds of philosophical questions about, you know, well, is this process one that should be widespread? How does that change the essential nature of wine? But you know what? You get that juice in your glass and it's really good. Um, the <laughs> other producer, I would go say- Go Dr. Bob. Go Dr. Bob. He's amazing. The other producer um, is a producer um, called Tabor in Israel. And I tell their story where yes. you know, for a long time, they're agronomists. She is, she is a farming and wine genius, Michal Ackerman. And, you know, she always ran her vineyard years and years and years ago, the way we all grew up seeing them with the perfect rows and not much between them and, and you know, picture postcard. But somebody from one of the agricultural organizations asked her one day, you know, do you love nature? And I said in the book, and she said, of course, I love nature. Nature is my life. I'm an agronomist. And, and this guy looks around and says, no, you don't, because I'm looking here. And if there's nothing between the vines, how's that an ecosystem, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. So she started, she went down the rabbit hole, asked herself these questions. And now, when I was visiting one of her vineyards in the summer of 2021, it was the most amazing whole ecosystem that she had created there. And on the label of the wines is an owl. And I said, why do you have an owl on your label? And she laughed and she said, because once the owls came back, that meant that we had brought back the ecosystem because it means that there's insects in the soil and there's their predator species are there to feed on the insects. And then, and then, and then, and then the owl at the apex decided to come back because there was enough food for it to hunt. It was a full ecosystem that had been brought back. And I think it's things like that that are going to have to happen around the wine world. And they are happening more and more often. And that is what not only lets me sleep at night, but it helps me get up in the morning optimistic for the future. Oh, I love that. That's a perfect way to wrap this up. And gosh, we honestly, I feel like I could talk to you all day long. But as I told you, I've got a cross country carpool I've got to make. So <laughs> can't be late to, to carpool. No, not at all. I'm driving. So uh, Brian Friedman, thank you so much. Again, the book is called Crushed, How a Changing Climate is Altering the Way We Drink. It is a fascinating read and you travel around the world with Brian as he explores what different regions are doing and different producers are doing to address the issues that they're running into with regards to climate change. And uh, we're so very, very grateful to you for spending this time with us and we wish you luck on the book tour. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan. So it's a thrill for oh, me to be on here with you. Thank, thank you. you. We are fans of yours. And Brian, how can our listeners find you on social media to follow you? So your best bet for social media is to find me on Instagram. Uh, I am at Friedman Reports. 
at Friedman Reports. You can get me on Twitter as well. It's FDT Report, as in food, drink, travel report. Uh, but mostly it's it's Instagram. I think like all of us, I'm like doom scrolling all the time. So if you message me, I'll, I'll, I'll get it way too quickly. <laughs> all right. Uh, well. well, thanks again. Enjoy the rest of your day and uh, sip, sip, hooray, Brian. Yes. Absolutely. You too. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Brian. Cheers. Cheers. Well, Mary Orlin, what an interesting conversation with Brian Friedman. I mean, this is both scary and also hopeful. And I know we're going to continue to be talking about climate change and the way it's impacting the wine world in the weeks and years to come, because we are all feeling the effects and we are going to be seeing the impacts in our glasses. I think it's going to be a lot of changes for what we're drinking in the glass. And that's the premise of Brian's book. But, you know, the vintners, the distillers, the winemakers, the growers he spent time with know full well the challenges from fires, floods, extreme hot, extreme cold, all these weather events that they can't control. So they've been very creative in looking for solutions, whether it's planting at higher altitudes or changing the type of grapes that they're growing. I mean, one day, who knows? We might be drinking something very different from Napa Valley than the big Cabernets we've all come to know and love. But it is a message of hope, and it's just something that we have to address now. And you know what? Whatever they're pouring, I will be here for it. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I am sure (laughs) we'll get really good in California at whatever it is we're growing. So, um... We want to thank all of our listeners for joining us on Sip Sip Hooray podcast. And if you like our podcast, we hope you share it with your friends and family because that really helps us continue to do what we love and continue to find great stories to share with you. Yes. And if you listen to us on one of the podcast platforms, please rate us or give us a review. That really helps other people find us too. But you can also follow us on social media. We are at Sip Sip Hooray Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, we are Sip Sip Hooray, number one, the number one. And um, for more information about this episode and links to Brian's book, you can go to our website, sipsiphooraypodcast.com. And while you're there, check out some of the other great interviews we've done. Okay, Mary Orlin, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun, and we thank all of our listeners for joining us. Until next time, sip, sip, hooray. And Mary Babbitt, sip, sip, hooray. And to all of our listeners, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.